from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Good morning. Good morning and welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics coming to you live from Huntsman Hall, the Wharton School, Sirius XM Business Radio Studio. Looking out onto the famous Locust Walk in all its summer glory this morning. July, no, nay, August. August. <laughs> oh my God. Uh, August 2, I think I we're up to. We're up to 2. The first show of the month of August, the year 2017. This is Cade Massey hosting this morning with my buddy, faculty colleague, Wharton Moneyball co-founder, creator, collaborator, Audie Weiner. It's good to be here. It's good. I feel like I've been here forever. It's like I'm sitting down in a car. You haven't been been here forever. I've been here almost every week hanging out with the fellas. Thank God for Audie Weiner, man. Yeah, holding down down the the fort. But you do know that I am going on my long-awaited sabbatical. No, no one told me this. What the heck? We just got Shane just back. Shane back. back. It's one of the great things that faculty types get to do, which is every seventh year. In fact, that is the origin of the word sabbatical. Mm. It is a Sabbath. I knew we were going to get some language a lessons. Little language this lessons. That's right. So it is a seventh year phenomenon, and I have postponed my sabbatical. So it's really more like because a, you're a month into it already. Uh, no, I, yeah, I have postponed it because I actually started officially July one. Yeah. The postponement is that it's it's good to be able to go with your family, and yeah, I had to right. sync that with my wife and Adi, kids. I'm so. not sure this is going to work out. I don't know that we can do this thing on a regular basis with only. You know, oh, there's only three, three of, of you? Yeah. <laughs> I think you'll no, manage just Given fine. the schedules, I mean, me and Shane haven't been in the same zip code in like three months, it seems like. Well, you guys are in hot pursuit by all these individuals and think tanks and universities. I'm, I'm not, and I'm, that's a very, businesses. very generous Is, Am I being generous? I, I don't ask what my colleagues do when they go away. I just, <laughs> I just assume they're doing something important. All Maybe right. you're on the beach. We will sort schedules. We will sort schedules. We promise that some combination of us are going to be here every Wednesday morning. We have been for the last three and a half years. We're going to continue every Wednesday morning, 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Eastern Time to talk sports analytics. You, too, can talk sports analytics with us. Give us a ring. The phone number is one eight four four wharton That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. Our new producer, Matt Dots. Matt Dots is on the board. He's holding down the fort. He, he, he will take your phone calls. He'll also take your email, businessradio at SiriusXM.com, businessradio at SiriusXM.com. Matt, people call you the new Matt. Is that an old thing already? Yeah, it's kind of old. I'm sorry. I've been away. We, may, we have a thing with mats. Yeah. So well, we make, we're delighted to have an, a new producer underway here, and he's been doing good work already. Eric and Shane are out and about doing God knows what. At least one of them is probably being productive. Odds are. <laughs> expected value. <laughs> yeah, expected sorry. number of people being productive in those two. I'm going to go with one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> expected value. All right. It's great. We, we're talking we're talking advanced math right away. Yeah. Expected we'll value. just dive straight into it, man. No, yeah, no, I'm, I'm, that's just the way I roll. You know, I'm kind of a high math so guy. I have been thinking immensely about sports in the last week and a half, well, but I've been watching less. I've been trying to keep up. So, in fact, I, we, do should, we should shout out to our, our assistant producers and, and interns, summer interns who've been really helping oh out, my gosh. keeping us abreast of everything that's going on, Zach and, and Seamus. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, I've been reading their 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 material, and it really puts me right our, at the our cutting week, edge of what's going on. Our weekly rundowns could be their own website. We could we could have a stats. We could be a we could be a news aggregator. A in news the sports aggregator. Analytics world. Something to think about. Social those, media. Those two guys could co co edit that page, and it would it would get I'm sure scores. 
and and it was delight to read because it led almost from the beginning through at least half of it with baseball. That's all they ever do. These guys are a little well, baseball happy. I love them. I love them. I'm thankful for them, but they're a little baseball it's, happy. I did notice at the back end, the back nine is is up your alley. Um, back six, maybe. Back. Well, you know, it still is. It's kind of the height of the baseball season. And after all, football is still in preseason. Not even preseason. They're in training camp. Yeah, well, I was, I was at training yesterday you I, were at, I, I, I was on he's the side i was on which the training camp i'm not to? gonna say i'm not sure it's <laughs> he's not gonna say it's it's a secret well you know my wharton moneyball academy is actually in full swing yeah and tell, have, us, tell us what that is so Rod. the wharton moneyball academy is a is a group of 80 students high school students from around the world who come to study statistics sports computer okay, hold on people sometimes say around the world when there's like one person from costa rica so that's, I, that, I want to know so we do how have, legitimately around the world it is. I think we have about six different countries, okay. Korea, China. Okay. Um, I think we have Lithuania. East Asia counts as around the world. Lithuania definitely counts yeah, as around, around the world. The world. Uh, we obviously have Canada. I don't generally count yeah, that. No, no not it. No. Um, but uh, mostly from around the United States, and they're studying statistics and computing and statistical computing all in the context of sports. Okay. So it's been an it's been an a uh, an all day affair. What wh- when it, when a kid applies and comes for that kind of experience, what's he coming for? Why is he why is he here or she? Well, it is actually he or she. Um, we could actually ask them, but that's that would be uh, an interesting <laughs> you know endeavor that I haven't really I'll t- done. I'll, I'll ask them tomorrow. I, I, I just I just build them and they come. I think that's the answer. Uh-huh. I'm not really sure. They'd have to tell well, you themselves. What are you trying to accomplish? Well, I tell you, one of the things that people people have asked me are they coming because they think they're going to get into wet to Penn or Wharton by coming to this, <laughs> and and they're 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 standing. So, some of the kids are actually in the in the producers booth listening, and I'm sure others are, are listening, but. If if I got any, any even a hint of that in their application, they didn't get accepted. Oh wow! So this the point of the uh, of the so of the program. Note, note to future applicants. So note to future applicants. If that's your goal and you make that too transparent, it's it's it's, well, it's in the garbage not, can. I mean, there's just no connection there. So. No, the, the real the real driving force is because these are kids who who love three things. Well, at least two of them: sports and and the intellectual study of it, mm-hmm. and which basically takes place using statistics. And that's really what our show is about, which is why we call it the Wharton Moneyball Academy, mm-hmm. which is to take an a, a subject matter and take it apart using analytical tools and and for our for the for the greater insight and the greater enjoyment and that's what we're doing and we have this the second piece which is really a complementary piece which is to learn how to compute mm-hmm. and that obviously is a skill which what, is transferable. What, it, what does it mean these days in 2017 what does it mean to learn how to compute because well, obviously at some level everyone knows how to compute so you mean something bigger i mean compute it. i mean i mean using computers and a computer algorithm algorithmic design and you mean like and co- coding. statistical coding statistical coding which is a little different from building an app mm-hmm. um but it has a lot of the same components it's a, it's a computing language we use the free software R, which mm-hmm. has been around for quite some time now, always but the it's, preferred, it, but it's just, becoming the dominant tool. Mm-hmm. The statisticians win. That was it was S and S plus back in well, the day. Well, S and S plus was 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 actually invented at Bell Laboratories, mm-hmm. and it was a, a for, for purchase product, and eventually a parallel product, same design, same formula, yeah. for, almost the same thing called R. I, I'm not really sure why it's called that. I speculated <laughs> because S is S and R is right before it. In the yeah. alphabet, we can do the free version. Right. And that, and that, and that of course, has competed with SPSS and Stata yep. and even Excel with its, with its add-on. And what about, what, these days, what about like Python or something? Are you guys doing coding in that or will you, might uh, you can think about doing well, that Well, yes, you really have to because one of the important pieces of data science is the data aggregation collection mm-hmm. and and uh, massaging, cleaning, and that tends to get done with Python or Java. Um, and the actual guts of a fast algorithm would probably be done in C. 
Okay. So you're you're are, do you need any computing experience to do this thing or are you taking people from scratch and up to being functional? Well, that's an interesting question. Um, I will say from from the application experience that computing experience was absolutely not necessary, but mm-hmm. the willingness to engage in computers was was necessary. And I would say about I half I haven't noticed that teenagers are scared of engaging with computers. They're not, but coding is something which is different than yeah. just you know, poking around sure. with software. Sure. It is a very different animal. And about half the students had had some experience. Okay. So, Adi, uh, how many years have you been doing this? It's the third year. We got it off okay. the ground two years ago with a okay. one-week program. And actually, I got a, I got a call indirectly uh, from a parent basically saying, how do I get more? Kid oh, likes it. Right? What's next? Can we do it again? Wow. <laughs> I wonder, do it again. I guess I, it does go very quickly. So, so. Do, do, are people eligible to come back a second time, or is there kind of no sense in doing that? Uh, I don't, there really isn't. Well, it's complicated. I mean, one of the things that we've discussed the program and what we, what we cover in two weeks, we cover in two weeks what gets covered at Penn in probably a full semester. Yeah, right. I can believe that. And uh, the time component is immense. It's about 30 hours of lecturing plus another 30 hours of computing. 30 across two weeks. Across two weeks. 15 and three hours hours a day. Half days in the classroom. And then there's a full half day in the afternoon. Well, not quite a full half day doing computing. And then they take it home and they work at night. Okay. So it's it's an immense amount of time. But it's so it's hard to really absorb something that comes in that quickly. Yeah. And I think that that the students learn when they go home that they just got a a foundation. They didn't really get it the way you would get in a class. There's no exams. There's no grades, which forces you to there's no reinforcement. I don't do problems in class. Okay. It's just, here it is, folks. So going on after you're learning this class is probably not the best thing. It's probably best to go back and just uh, do it a little slower. So, okay. uh, but from the coding perspective, you've got such a great foundation, you can start doing stuff already. So, Adi, it feels to me like you built this thing a little bit in the image of, the, of our radio show because you yes. bring guests in every day. And I so do. You've, you've, and I think, I mean, my sense is that you've always had interesting guests, but they only get more interesting each year. So can you tell us kind of some of the folks that you've had come through this year? Uh, so some of, this year we, we actually tried to expand it out a little bit. Um, it's very easy. In the first year of the program, it was very easy to me, for me to lean on my contacts in baseball. That, that's the sport I've had. I'm glad we've expanded you. We have expanded. And, we, and I've actually... It's uh, one of my great... Contra- it's one of my only contributions, but one of my great contributions around here. I've expanded out beyond baseball. That's yeah, you have. We did bring in a tennis expert, uh, so and that was interesting. We actually had our, uh, a uh, Stephanie Kowalczyk who was on our show. Yeah, right. um, she talked to to the students. Uh, um, it was a, a very complex talk, which uh, which you always have to wonder how, how how well that goes over with the kids. But I think the kids enjoyed it. Okay. We had Vasu Konkarni. He was on our show also. Yeah. He's the guy who founded Crossover, which yep. was recently sold in a private equity engagement. Did so we don't know how majority, much. Majority or did he? Did he sell? Uh, we don't know any of the details, but yes, he sold the majority. He's well, okay. essentially out okay. of. The company, so he, although he's still working there for some time to keep it. So going. Remind us what crossover. This is a very interesting business model and service. Essentially, it's an incredibly interesting business model. He, this is the this is the this is the software that he sells. It's not really even it is a piece of software. Essentially, what he does is he he, he sells this to a, a team, typically a high school or a college team, and then anybody with no technical training will video the game and upload that to their server then the video will be sent to some individual in into from India from Bangladesh from the Philippines will be paid about $15 a game to annotate the game and they they have a special piece of software that allows them to record everything that happens but it's all done human it's not video recognition and then they produce a wonderful interface uh, technical interface that shows you 
at a very high level what's happening on the court, if it's basketball, on the field, if it's football. And it also aggregates they, they and links cr- they the video. Lacrosse also. They so do lacrosse. Some, some and, minor sports like that. There. And field hockey. And, and I actually tried to convince Vasu that he should do baseball. He said, why would I do baseball? Baseball is, so, is slow enough that anyone can do it on the, on the fly. I said, but you have this great video tool which can produce advanced statistics that doesn't need the, the, the cameras, um, the, the stat cast. You can produce some of that. Yeah. And, and he started thinking, hmm, maybe we'll do this. But he sold the company, so he may not be that interested. <laughs> but there are competitors that are moving into the space. It's amazing how big the company is, how much, how, I mean, how valuable the sale was. Right, right, right. Well, that, that's exciting. It's also fun to see those guys. And he's a Penn grad, right? So. He is a Penn grad. He also made a lot of hay. <laughs> I'm not sure whether this was the right message for the students, but perhaps it's the right message for the world. He said, essentially, don't get so upset about grades. I did not have good ones. Um, and I essentially devoted all my time to basketball, pickup basketball, j- junior varsity basketball, club basketball, that's playing sh- basketball. That's and he did not take his classes seriously. He had a very poor GPA. He posted on okay. Matt, on can you website. edit out the last minute of Adi, please? <laughs> yeah, yes, set that out. But the message to, to the students was an interesting one, which is that you can succeed even if you don't have great grades. And I do re- welcome that message because it do- it is a countervailing message to the mass society message and what they get at the University of Pennsylvania is their life is their grades and their life is their accomplishments and what he wanted to point out is actually that's not true and it's one of the great transitions that a kid has to make is from graduating college to moving out into the world and they realize that all the metrics that matter at college don't matter at all when you leave it. That's interesting. We're talking to Adi Weiner, my co-host here on Wharton Moneyball. He is hosting his annual, you call it a... a, a Academy, Academy. Wharton Moneyball Academy. Wharton Moneyball Academy for 80 high school students who are studying statistics, computing, and sports. And it's a program Adi created. And uh, it's kind of a a cousin uh, to the offering we have here on our radio show. Adi's been describing the guests. He's only gotten two into a long list of interesting guests. Who else have you had come through? We had Al Calby, who is the director of actually he's a vice president of the Eagles. And he's VP now. He's and he's he handles. A kid. He's how a kid. Can he be a VP. He, it's amazing how young. In fact, that's incredible. All the so much of the the upper management of uh, of of sports is is done by essentially people in their thirties. Alec Alec came out of Harvard. He's been I think he kind of went straight in. If he didn't go straight in, he almost went straight into the Eagles, and he was like their only analyst. That's right. He's still most of their analytics power, I think. But he's probably now, he might be 30. He might be 30. Yeah. Uh, and we also had Alex Keith Gray. Law. Keith Law, who was on his, essentially has this great book that he's been promoting. He's been on all over ESPN. He's one of the ESPN analysts. He covers baseball, particularly prospects. Okay. And uh, he talked a lot about the trades, which have happened over the last few days because the yeah, trade deadline right. just passed. Right. And he was a terrific hit. He, he also talked a lot about, about the Moneyball era itself. He, he, he was uh, working for professional baseball when he was when Michael Lewis wrote his book. Okay. We also had Rick Peterson who comes and came yeah, in right. and gave his uh, terrific spiel to the to the students uh-huh. about the mental game, and he has his new book out. And when we had Neil Payne, Neil Payne came and, and spoke uh, to the one students. Of our all-time favorite guest, Neil Payne of Five Thirty Eight, all about data journalism. So he actually spoke specifically about this idea of what data journalism. You should is. have videotaped these talks, Adi. You should have videotaped these talks. I'm not sure. Sigh. <laughs> in the in the, seriously, that's a request for next year. I, it doesn't seem like this is the kind of thing where people would be talking about things that they wouldn't mind being shared yeah. publicly. So um, 
it would be a great service. I mean, for people to have a chance to see Neil, I mean, Neil does a video podcast, and so people can see Neil talk, but this is kind of a different forum. And from my understanding from you, I think this was an early last week kind of guest, he was talking about, you know, what do you need to do to get your stuff out there? What do you need mm-hmm. to do to get attention? What do you need to do to make your stuff stick? That's and right. That's, and he's a great person to say that. He's been with 538 from the beginning. He started when he was in Philadelphia. He was one of our early guests. He was in, he's been in studio with us a number of times. Moved to New York because of a two-body, that's a dual career issue, and has been with 538. Then he's one of the great sports analysts out there. And he had a terrific article, which maybe we'll get around to discussing. Just came out yesterday. It was, And our, our uh, interns did a terrific job of summarizing it. So b- b- before we do that, let's, let's, I want to hear a little bit from you on, since, you're, since it's fresh for you, talking about statistics and sports and teaching it and seeing what lands, what is harder to digest, you're in the mode of talking about and communicating sports analytics and how to do it. What, what's top of mind for you? What, what, have you what, has, what has struck you over the last week and a half as you've run this academy or heard others give lectures at your academy in terms of what's it, you know, people who are trying to get into the business, people who are trying to be more effective at this kind of work, people who are trying to do better analytics? The thing that, that, that is so compelling about this course and brings it right to the front of mind is that data has to tell a story. And when you listen to some of our guests, and particularly Neil, Neil Payne and Keith Law, who are writers, that they are essentially storytellers. And Michael Lewis, who is the, the, essentially the author of the, the name of our, our show, the name of the book, and Michael Lewis is a storyteller. And there's a boundary between telling a story that's good to tell because it's fun to hear and entertaining and true. <laughs> and, and it's a porous boundary. It's, and it is a porous a boundary. Poorly, and some of those individuals cross those boundaries. Oh, for sure. So the whole es- essence of yeah, not some of those individuals, yeah. some individuals and other individuals. That's right. And a lot of times we we try desperately to believe something because it tells a great story. Yeah. So uh, and and that's what what and and to become a scientist is to is to reel in your own worst inclinations. One of my favorite by worst you mean. To tell stories. To tell stories, to, be... to, to fool yourself. And, and, and it, is, it is one of my favorite sayings of all time is, 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 uh, is due to um, the great physicist uh, Feynman. Richard Feynman, who is one of the most brilliant uh, in person, most flamboyant personalities and brilliant men of the 20th century, was a physicist at Caltech, Nobel Prize winner. I mean, as, as, as amazing and as fa- they come. Fam- famous educator. Famous educator, he, incredible series writer. of lectures and mm-hmm. writers and, and bongo player or drum player. <laughs> spoke, he has incredible life. He wrote these fantastic um, books called uh, Surely You're Joking, Mr. Feynman. There's one and there's two. And he spoke at, at Caltech's graduation um, sometime um, in, in the few years before he died. And he, he, it's a short speech, no flowery language, just straight advice. And one of the things he said is that when he, it was really about the pursuit of science and the pr- pursuit of truth. And he, and he said to the students that you have to be very careful, speaking to the students, you, you students, you have to be very careful because you have to make sure not to fool yourself yeah 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 and everyone's like oh well sure because you are the easiest person of all to fool that's right and that's where it starts and that when you teach something when you're very interested in in telling a story getting everyone engaged but you have to not cross that line of 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 essentially bullshit and and it's so easy to do that particularly when there's noise and we live in this world where data is is accumulated and it's just it's just it's just noise and i was listening to the hot takedown podcast and i love to listen to it every week this is neil's neil's um podcast with with 538 
and there was a discussion about the trades that have been ha- that have been taking place. And every uh, if you've been following, uh, Sonny Gray went to the Yankees. He was one of the best pitchers. Hugh Darvish uh, went to the Dodgers, also one of the best pitchers. And this is incredible because these are two of the best teams. The Dodgers are forty three games over five hundred. They're on pace to to have one hundred and ten wins or, or more. They are considered already one of the all time greatest teams. And now they pick up another 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 pitcher. Great. So one of the the, the guests said, but the real steals of the of the uh, of the the trade deadline were the Cubs. The Cubs? What did the Cubs get? A uh, backup catcher, a backup pitcher, a decent starter? Um, how'd that happen? Well, in terms of war, he started walking, uh, you know, talking about war. They got twice as many war as the Yankees and the Dodgers. And I'm thinking, really? And it just didn't <laughs> sniff, pass the sniff test. Um, and I'm listening to that. And war is a measurement with a lot of noise. And it, it, it's, it captures a lot of things, but it also captures a lot of things crudely. And and it, this is a story that wanted to be told. He wanted to say, ha, ah, the Cubs really... It's his story. It's his story. And I'm not sure the data supports that story. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you can yeah. tell it, uh, but you have to have a little humility about data. You need a lot of humility about data. This is, I think, one of the main things that distinguishes an experienced data scientist, one who's actually interacted with the world and engaged and pushed all the way through to concrete reality. It's humility about the data. And we can fall in love with our models and our technology and our coding. We can fall in love with that stuff because it's beautiful, but that doesn't mean that it's true. And and most of what we do with data involves a huge chunk of uncertainty, and we got to keep that in mind. And actually, one of the things that uh, I talked about with the students was one of one of our favorite show mantras. It's not about the outcome; it's about the process. Mm-hmm. And we devote ourselves to the, the statistical process, but that doesn't mean it's going to be correct. So we spent a lot of uh, sort of on the fly. We did a calculation, which is an ongoing thing here in this booth while you've been away, mostly with Eric and with me and and, and Shane. Is forecasting Aaron Judge's eventual home run, yeah, yeah, uh, um, total Great. for uh-huh. the year. Now we're in about two thirds of the year in, and so the, obviously we get Where's better. The or, or the dry erase, but they were <laughs> right. So we, at about eighteen, when, when Trout was un, had not been was healthy, and 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 both Trout and and Harper and and Judge were around eighteen, nineteen, much earlier in the season. We were trying to make a forecast, and this was a, a record pace for all of them. We're, we're just just popping the ball, and. Uh, Eric was so high on one of these three getting 50 home runs. And I was like, you got to pull this back. Um, Trout has never come close to 50 home runs. And mm-hmm. although he's probably the has the highest likelihood of having over 40 because he has the lowest amount of variance, 50 just seems an, as a stretch for him. Harper hasn't come close to 50 either. And Judge is a rookie. So you have to, what do you do with that? So we actually did a calculation on the fly to forecast Aaron Judge at the end of the season, and the number we got was 45. So he's at 34, and 45 wow. seems like not that much. He's wow. only 11 home runs of the rest of the season. But we used a, one of our techniques, the regression technique, the regression yeah. of the mean, and, and that's the, the, the data. We looked at all the players, and historically, well, we just really did the previous year, and we just tried to, to correlate what their total was at the end of the year compared to what it was at two-thirds mark. And the correlation was under 0.8. You build a model, you make a forecast, you get 45. And then we get an error for, uh, bound for that forecast, right. and it's about five. 45 plus or minus five. So one of the students oh, wow. says, well, what if you're wrong? Does that prove that does the whole process now bad? Well, the answer is no. <laughs> no. I mean, just because you make a mistake. And, and, and it's you very, know with some percentage of the time you're going to be wrong with those right. kinds of forecasts. I would be only concerned if... The, the problem would be only if I'm off by more than two standard deviations. Yeah, right, right, right. So this is Cade Massey co-hosting this morning with my buddy Audie Weiner. We've been talking with Audie about the Wharton Moneyball Academy, a program that Audie created three years ago, ran for the first time three, two, two years two ago. Two years ago. It was our third time. 
and um, involves having 80 high school students and for two weeks now, two-week program on statistics, computing, and sports. Adi, uh, this, the, the judge competition you were just talking about reminds me of a question I was playing with yesterday with this NFL team, and it's, you have to put a little bit of your psychologist real-world hat on here. Okay? I'm enjoying wearing that hat. Okay, here we go. Here's, here's one for you. Consider two different people or two different conditions for forecasting judges' uh, end-of-season home run total. One makes a forecast every month. And in the intervening month, it kind of doesn't somehow doesn't think about this, mm-hmm. okay? And they come on and they and they they uh, they uh, you know write their number down on the dry erase board. On the other condition, you make a forecast. Let's call it every three days. So, you know they're at, you're gonna you're you're gonna have points in the season where you have equally updated forecasts. You know, a month into it, one they should party, be the same. They, well, the one one party will have made one forecast another party will have made 10 forecasts but on that day they will work with the same information the question is do you think one's gonna be more accurate than the other and the general question we're talking about is is there any advantage to incremental updates and this taps into again a big theme on this show is belief revision updating this bayesian model that we think is ubiquitous in the world and we advocate involves having an opinion Observing some new information and revising, revising your opinion. that opinion. So belief revision, and this is a this is a this is a nuance on belief revision. Is there any advantage to doing it more incrementally, more frequently? Do you think forecasts would be more accurate if people did that? Well, what are we forecasting at every stage? In, in this case, in this example, I, mean, I can give you other real world examples, but let's just go with your judges. Your the fina- Aaron, so essentially, Aaron the problem judges. is that is that there's no um, feedback on accuracy. If I'm still, if all I'm doing is is Correct. forecasting Correct. a number that won't get decided Correct. upon to the end. That's what I'm interested in, and therefore I wouldn't advocate. I mean, I don't think you do better. I mean, I, if you do this on a on a more frequent basis, but on the other hand, if I'm doing something that actually produces some information and I get some yeah. feedback, no. that that would allow me to to essentially calibrate myself. So let, what about this though, Adi? So even though the event itself that you're forecasting isn't resolved. The information is moving, so there is feedback yeah. in terms of and the it, world has shifted some, and either it's become more or less likely. Sure, so of course it is. I mean, every time, every time, the, every time he hits a home run, you're going to so want to change his forecast people, by at least one. So, right? is it helpful? <laughs> they're getting probabilistic forecast. They're getting partial feedback. They're getting their probabilistic feedback. Partial. Feedback. I, I, yeah, I, I guess it would be helpful. I mean, I, okay. So I have. I'm. I'm. I'm setting you up a little bit because of course you are. <laughs> there's our buddy Phil Tetlock and and his wife and colleague Barb Mellers and their whole team on the Good Judgment Project. So Tetlock has has led a team that worked on judgment for uh, forecasting tournaments, and from that they came up with some great methods and some interesting insights. And he's got an, a recent book out called Super Forecasting, Super Forecasters. One of the only things they find that distinguish their better forecasters from their average forecasters is more frequent updates, smaller, more frequent updates to whatever it is. And they're usually trying to forecast some political event or some economic outcome sometime in the future. So you're paying, they're paying, basically paying attention to news and like logging back on and changing a forecast they'd made two days before as opposed to every week or every two weeks. And I asked the question because, for example, with college scouts – NFL teams who have a, a whole group of college scouts, and they're evaluating seniors and juniors who might declare for the NFL draft. And they're, they're evaluating them over the course of the year. They go in in August. They get background information on them. Then they start watching tapes, seeing them play games. They're updating their opinions. 
then they see them, you know, they maybe interview them sometime, they get some combine information. Is it better to revisit these things and update them of as course they go? Is. But, you, you know, I'm going to put it in a mathematical language for you, which I'm sure Phil and you didn't think of. This is called errors and variables. You have, uh, in, in, in any model, you have Y, with the thing you're forecasting, we, we usually write Y, which is called the response. And X is the things that you're using to estimate them. When the things that you are using, the information you're using to estimate them, X, are measured with v- error, then you need to be revisiting your forecasts every day because you're actually getting information on both sides of the equation that's getting revised. You're, the model is being make revised. Y, make Y and X concrete for us okay, in the real so world example. Okay, so I'm trying to fi- the thing that I'm trying to forecast is so let's take, let's take a my political example. event. No, or, well, take, or my, take my my which one. Take my college senior who uh, NFL scouts trying to evaluate as an NFL prospect. Okay, so um, so essentially, why there is is success in the NFL? Yep. The prospect information they're in high school or, or, or they're in college. College. I mean, college. In college, you have you have concrete information about how they did on the field, but you have all this makeup stuff, and you have all this this this. So by, the way, by the way, the concrete information from the field is noisy measurement. Is, is of noisy the, of measurement that you're interested in, which is right. the underlying ability or underlying effort. That's true, but at least they're they're not. I mean, the measurement itself is not is not is not, not without so, error. It is, so, is without error. Is very, so the reason why the, the Aaron Judge example is very different because I can almost build that forecasting algorithm into a computer and just walk away from it. Yeah, and so the, if the computer spits out data no, no, every day. It's, you could this, do that. it's done, and I had nothing to add. But in the examples that you think about, particularly sociology and economics and po- political science, you have to make a judgment about the world. What the world is saying, what information is going on to the x side of your equation, and process that. And that's the information that you're constantly updating. It's almost as if you're changing your model constantly. And 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 I've, I still don't yet have the instinct for the incremental steps being more advantageous than the broad than the bigger infrequent steps. Because what you're doing is you think about the X's as index them now with a time index. Yeah. You're estimating the true X, which you don't see, and that's why it's errors and variables. You're observing X plus and epsilon, a noise. Yeah. And what you're doing on a daily basis is you're averaging those, and those will have less noise. I see. Okay. So, so you're getting the central limit theorem on both sides of the equation. I wonder, and it, it, it leaves open the question of psychologically, whether it's good or bad, mm. to be asked to come afresh basically each time, which is what you're supposed that's to do. That's what I'm doing because that's the independence aspect of it. The central limit theorem doesn't work if you do the same thing over and over again. Because yep. they're all the t- same. The same bad mistake percolates right to the end. Yep. But that's the psychological component. You're asking yourself to make a fresh look at a problem that and you it, think you've done it, once it, before. And it might be that if you want that fresh if you want that independence, you actually do need to step away from it for that's a while. Right. It could be that that's the case. Yeah. So I'm not sure we resolved the question. I, I'm not sure we have it all, but but, but, but uh, th- those are, I consider those things very different. Now, this whole concept of making forecast machine learning, it's just going crazy. I mean, everyone is using it everywhere. Google and Facebook are introducing products. Google's pushing something called TensorFlow. I'd love to have a conversation about that uh, at some point, which is essentially free high-level machine learning. And and I and some of my students and colleagues are, are trying to study this. It's it's uh, this the world is changing under our feet. Sure, absolutely, and we will at some point, Adi, talk about TensorFlow. Right now. We need to take a break. That has been one quarter, the first quarter of Wharton Moneyball. We still have three quarters to go. Come back and join us after the break. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. 
Two hours of sports analytics every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10. Sound engineer Danielle Bruno brings us up through the bottom of the hour, rolling into the second quarter of the show. This is Cade Massey hosting this morning with my faculty colleague and buddy, Adi Weiner. Eric and Shane will be back. Some combination of us are here every Wednesday morning. You can join us. Please do join us. Give us a ring. 1-844-942-7866. New producer, Matt Dots. Waiting for your phone call. 1-844-942-7866. Or you can email Matt. We take emails during the show. We also take emails during the week. If you're listening one of the replayed four or five times over the course of the week, we pick up those emails. We do respond. But we also respond live. Business radio at SiriusXM.com. Business radio at SiriusXM.com. We're going to keep the lines open for the next half hour. We're going to keep talking about sports for the next half hour. I've only got Adi for the next half hour because he's going to roll over to some other responsibilities. Then I have guests. I'm all by myself in the second half of the show, but I it's have okay. guests. I have, I'm going to make it. Um, so open lines between now and then, a few different things to talk about. Adi, even I can't avoid all the trade talk from the world from the of baseball. baseball. So, yeah. Can you tell me anything new? Here, here, let me give you the outside perspective. The outside perspective, the naive outside headline following only take is that the rich get richer, that we're on track for a good old classic 1970s World Series between the Yankees and the Dodgers, which I think would actually be fun. And the Astros are right in the middle of that. I know, kind of in the I know. and apparently the Sox, <laughs> the Sox are still, despite all the hullabaloo about the Yankees, They've, and partly because of a great game last night, still leading the AL East. But I kind of, I'm kind of worried because I think we're heading into a fall where everybody's focused on the dadgum AL East, and it's all about Yankees and Red Sox. Again. I don't think so. I mean, well, the thing is that the Dodgers are 43 games uh, above 500. Yeah. Astros are are almost as good. They've kind of locked up their their particular divisions. The Yankees and the Red Sox are certainly in the middle of a race. The Cubs are in a race, and they're coming back. That's that's always interesting. There's a good mix of the the classic okay, races of yesteryear. The Astros are the, the are the, can are you, the question are you mark. capable of talking about baseball without using the term yesteryear? I mean, has that ever once happened? <laughs> Not on <laughs> that's this show. Why we do not it. on this that's show. Why we do baseball? All right. Um, so you're telling me that I've got some hope that it's not necessarily all Yankee Sox for the rest of the year. That's good to hear. Um, I'm hearing things like Dodgers are. What is it they're saying about them? This is the best record, best performance, like and one of the best in the history of baseball. Okay, Some well, absurd thing like it's that. It's hard to do that because comparing over arrows is not. I get it, but that's also simple. kind of the game. That's it's kind, kind of, of the game. game. Uh, so ELO's uh, the the ELO the me- metric that that five thirty eight pushes has them the highest at certainly this point best, of the season. Best ELO at this seen. point in the season yeah. ever. Now, how far back do they calculate ELOs? You can calculate ELO, ELO as far back as you want, but I think so they, they did it since 1961, at least. I saw some references yeah. to 1901. Yeah, you can try that, too. <laughs> you're, you're nodding your head, because shaking your head. Because, because it's very you hard. Like, a, after just... you cross a, the se- end of the season boundary, it, ELO is a cumulative score. So in order to get a very high, it's, it's designed for chess. So you need to have a, um, all your data goes in. And then when you hit the end of the season, you don't just roll over with the ELO score that you had. They regress it down to the mean. And they regress it down to the mean by some arbitrary fraction. So it starts to get a little fuzzy. Okay. I mean, what are you dealing with, right? Okay, fair enough. As, as a sophisticated observer, albeit one from the East Coast looking to the West Coast, because I know there are some biases, what's your take on the Dodgers? And especially this idea they got, they got 
they got this pitcher from the Rangers, and they're saying this was already one of the best teams ever, and they added one of the best starters in the league. Yep. Well, he hasn't had the best season in terms of what they call their surface numbers. That's the great way of, of comparing um, these more sophisticated statistics versus the traditional ones. The surface stats aren't terrific. Uh, the, the surface e- being the, the traditional. The traditional, the ERA, the, the wins. Um, the ER, but the, the metrics that are mo- mostly based on strikeout rate, walk rates, uh, batting average on balls in play, home run rates, uh, fly ball rates, ground balls, the stuff that the sophisticated people use. Movement, um, that's um, velocity, uh, uh, a mix of pitches, he still he looks fantastic. This is Hugh Darvish. I just want to note that we're talking about essentially a new generation of stats given the motion tracking stuff because uh. we've gone from you know better ways of looking what happens when the balls hit, which is essentially That's moving right. from surface stats to the first generation money ball stats, and now we're going to these. I think of them as process stats. It's like more detail about what goes into the event, whether it's. It's launch angle, exit velocity, spin rate. Mm-hmm. We're, that's a whole new generation. It is a whole new generation. And it's interesting because uh, you know I have a whole team of, of, of undergraduates who, who do research and, and I work with throughout the year. And some of them had a chance to get involved with the, the teams fundamentally, d- directly, in, uh, in, by working with them this summer. And they've seen front and center the amounts of data that they have yeah. and the kinds of models that they're building. And it's almost as if they're trying to divorce measurements of effectiveness from actual outcomes on the field. It's, 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 it's almost insane. It's like we don't care what actually happens when the batter does something with it. We're just looking at a pitch to see what its movement is, how much spin and how much, how much, how much arc and, and et cetera. Okay, I'm a little surprised at the tone you're bringing to that characterization. You are more negative on that approach than I might have thought. Okay, the problem is is that we're still too early to figure out. I don't. I, I, one of the I, I, my, the tone is is uh, negative comes from from the fact that I don't have that data. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a good reason for the tone. And because I, and because I'm a generally by nature suspicious and questioning and never satisfied, I have a very hard time accepting that something actually does the job that you say it does unless I can check it. Okay. All right. So we were just talking in the last half hour about the need for not fooling yourself, and that really just speaks to a broader approach to the world, which is kind of a skeptical, don't get too worked mm-hmm. up, too high or too low over data, you know, bring, bring, your, bring your critical lens. And you're just saying that about this thing. But you're, you're saying that by going to these very detailed process measures, they are em- embracing, actively seeking a divorce from process and outcome. Mm-hmm. And the reason they do that, I'm sure, is because they think if we know what the process was, we don't need to know or care. In fact, if we put in, if we understand the process fully, if we put any weight at all on the outcome, we're only chasing noise. That's right. That those are things outside of the control the of grill. the pitcher and the batter. And so why would we why would, we don't want to even bother because it's just just going to distract us. And yet so you can you can endorse that approach. I right? can if you can do it. If you can do it. But it's hard. And, so t- and this is this is a cha- almost a chaotic system, and uh, you look at at someone like Clayton one, one Kershaw. Second. Do you do? You, or is your concern more that the process measures they have aren't actually capturing the key inputs, or that the outcome measures they're ignoring aren't quite as free from people's control as they think they are? I think it's probably the former, if I understood okay. the question properly. Okay. I don't know whether the that the process measures the measurements that we're making by themselves say what needs to be made, say what needs to be said. Mm -hmm. If you could tell me, and I've read some articles based on the data that's available, and that's that's when someone says to me, aha, but you don't have what we have, 
I already <laughs> say, okay, I know I don't have the data that you have, but you don't have the wisdom and experience I have of dealing with statistics. Right, speaking of humility, so, speaking and, and no, if we can, like, you know, right. that you're was right. my point. And 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 I, it's it's very hard to know what the model is and how they use it. And I've seen lots of crappy ones get used all the time. So, and right. there's also problems with data quality. This is still early technology, and there's many many errors in it. And so it's the real holy grail, just to, to think about, say, the Dodgers and their, their Hugh Darvish acquisition. If you really don't need to know what's on, happened on the field and you can just look at how his pitches are moving, that's an amazing accomplishment. But I'm going to wait. And so the more amazing the accomplishment, the more skeptical I am. Well, that can't, that, that's really well put. Really, really well put. The more amazing the accomplishment, the more skeptical I am. That sounds exactly right. Because with, you know, it stands to reason that with decades of work and millions of observations and hundreds of thousands of people putting their time and attention on it, you're not going to radically transform, you know, overnight. So I think that's appropriate. I mean, this now that you've described it that way, I mean, of, of course other things matter. I mean, if you're pitchers, they worry about, you know, you might telegraph your pitch is a huge issue, right? If people get a if they get tipped off on whether this is going to be a fastball or a curveball. Yeah, there was some concern with some of the pitchers. I think Hugh Darvish was one of them that was tipping his pitches. Well, I mean, look, that's completely outside of the spin rate and velocity that's and right. those kinds of things. And yet it's going to make a difference in a way that matters. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, what else about the what else about the what's going on with baseball right now? So on the on the. Uh, on the Yankee side, your team, you've admirably withheld comments. So uh, far? Well, they had, they had. I think they, they made exactly the right acquisitions. They picked up a, a reliever, the, the relief pitcher. I don't think Girardi. I'm gonna be. I'm gonna be right there. I don't like the way Girardi manages. I've been screaming at the damn screen for years now. I think he's old school. I don't think he handles his relievers in, in a modern way. Okay. I think he's very, you know, ninth inning, ninth inning. This is the way it goes. Um, and you want relievers brought in early. I, you want... I want. I want more flexibility. Okay. Pit, pitch two innings. Pitch one inning. Bring him in early even if it doesn't seem necessary, yeah. um, particularly when you have depth in a bullpen, which yeah. he has, yeah. and use it. I mean, it was. I remember the days, roll back the clock, 1960s, and I don't mean yesteryear, not, not 1960s, 1990s, when the Yankees would bring in Mariano Rivera for two innings and close with Wetland. And this was like day in and day out, boom, boom. And it was like clockwork. This, yeah. is, how, this is how Torrey won a championship. Yeah. And now you have Robertson, you've got, uh, you've got Patances, you've got Chapman. Um, this is... Uh, we're just I'm just there's more I mean and you got the back four, five four innings just clocked in it's tough for these guys who came up in that previous era played in that previous era won in that previous era to go about things differently it's it's an unusual manager to not try to replicate successful methods from the past right and and the thing is you bring them in when you're behind and you bring them in you it just doesn't matter this there's somehow idea that 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 when the game, when you're behind, you do yeah. things differently within your head. If you only, if your opponents have only four or five innings to score because your back end is so good, give yourself those four or five innings to score on your own and catch up. Yeah. And no, Girardi doesn't do that. Either. So who are manager? Who are some managers in the league who are more forward thinking? You know, I wish. I, uh, well, obviously, the you know the the the, the, the most successful teams that you've seen today, I think, are doing that. So right. Joe Madden is yep. more successful. I mean, you saw this last year with the Indians. I mean, I was about to ask about the Indians. So, and and that, that that's what's that, that's what's really what, that's what I would argue is is uh, some more much more creative use of the pitching. I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on. I mean, uh, I mean, and and it's untested. I mean, this whole this whole idea of how much you should let a, a pitcher rest. This is talk about holy grail for pitching. I mean, figuring out what prevents injuries. Yeah. We have all the data. Nobody can figure it out yeah. yet. Yeah. Yeah, this is Cade Massey. I'm hosting Wharton Moneyball this morning with my buddy and co-host Adi Weiner. We're talking 
baseball, there's obviously been some big moves around there. I want to ask one more question about this whole thing. As especially a namesake of our show, the A's. What's it like to be an A's fan? The, the, the pitcher that the Yanks picked up were, is from Sunny the Graham. A's, and I mean, what are they just? Is this their business? Is that they grow players for other people? And 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 what's the end game there? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I think they're already they on rebuilding. Wait, I mean, they, they, they picked wait? up good prospects from the Yankees, three of them. I'm not they, the best prospects, but I think they got a good so value. So, Adi, out of is it. it that like nine years out of ten, this is how they do? Yeah, and that then seems one to be year it. out of ten, or maybe you know, two or three years cycle at the top of a. Of, of they a, always seem to compete. I mean, it's uh, the problem for the A's is that they don't ever win. So they just have to wait until they get close enough to... Cause they got to spend money. I mean, the thing about the Yankees and the Dodgers... A couple years ago, is, they made some moves, right? They did make some Maybe moves. Maybe two seasons ago? The problem with the Yankees and the Dodgers is that they can they play the same game. Everybody knows how to play it now, right? You, you grow your own talent. You sell it. You, you bring in a better trade. Yankees have done well with that. But then with you have the, 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 the money that the Dodgers and the Yankees have, the huge, huge bankrolls, you just buy some players to just fill your holes. Free agents. Um, you pick up some contracts. You know... Boom. Mm-hmm. So I think I, this is a little early for the Yankees. No one thought they'd be competing this year. Yeah, right. Exactly. I thought we had another, We were going to sign the Yankees. I, we I, 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 I don't want to sound like the we folks. That's what uh, – Yankees are they mm-hmm. as much as a fan. You don't say we. I, don't, uh, I, I disagree. You, you disagree with that. As a fan, you can say we. The Yankees are going to sign one of the one of the in the next couple of years when the, 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 the young kids, the ones who started at 20, the Harper, the Trouts, the Machados. They're going to steal one of those guys. One of these guys are going to be a free agent, and uh, they're going to pick up one of them. I don't know which one is it going to be. Okay, let's, let's, let's talk the implications here. What probability would you put? We can look at you know, fan graphs or something, but where do you put? You know, if you read the headlines, it looks like the Dodgers are all but guaranteed. You know, well, certainly to their make, division. Look, so they're going to win their division. They have to go through. They have to go through Astros and Cubs, maybe Cubs, to to get to the World Series. If you had to put a probability that the Dodgers won the World Series right now, what would you put? And what would you do for the Yankees? You know, if if Shane were right here, if I can almost see him sitting here, there he is saying. It's a coin toss, man. Once they get to the playoffs, how'd I says, do? Playoff series. Is that my? That was my Not chain bad. impression. Not, Not bad. bad. Not bad. Uh, once it gets to a playoff, it's a coin toss. Even, so I don't even, believe that. Even when they have Darvish uh, and everything okay, else so they had, but Kershaw's back. And it's all not that. really a coin toss. But the best you can get is like a, a 60% coin okay. on a playoff series. The most you're going to give the Dodgers, with even with this great pitching staff, improved pitching staff, is 60%. They still have to go through two They're series go through to good get teams. there. They're gonna go through the, they have to go through the Nationals. They're a good team. Okay. Cubs. Good team. Yeah. And yeah, they're better, but <laughs> okay, so it's give, baseball, so, so and give, it's not because the teams are so so similar. I mean, one of the one of the mistakes I heard this morning was the observation that ju- the reason why the Dodgers aren't going to be a lock, like the Warriors are a lock, and and they are as close to it as you can get in a sport, is because talent is still close, more more closely um, aligned in baseball than in basketball. That's not it. More closely aligned is not the right term. You mean uh, balanced? Yeah, okay. yeah, more closely balanced. So essentially, more what you're saying is, is that the, the Dodgers, compared to to say a sixth or seventh or eighth ranked team, are not that much better. Actually, I think they are. The problem is it's baseball. Baseball Which is has more noisier. Noise. Yes. Mm-hmm. Much it's a clumpier, noisier, more explosive game than basketball. Basketball is back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. There's a lot of that's a lot of repetition. Mm-hmm. The sample size. I'm going to use the the stat word n 
and is much larger in basketball. You know, we in, in, in making comparisons across sports, we always focus on that latter point, the noisiness. We do, anyway. The noisiness of the, the different amount of noise in the different games. You've just raised this other question, which is the distribution of talent across teams and how that varies across sports. And I'm not sure we've talked about that much. I think it's kind of interesting. Like, how, And you'd, you'd, you'd have to wonder, are there structural reasons that the distribution of talent would be different? And I think there are. So there's a more generous salary cap, softer salary cap in baseball. And that would get, lead to more variance. That's going to lead to more variance across teams, for sure, than a very hard cap, for example, in football. Well, you know, it's interesting. Football, I, I mean, we talk with Alec a lot about that offline and, and, and with the students. Why is football so, so, nevertheless so disparate despite the fact that the money spent is very, almost similar? Why are the Jets so bad? <laughs> I mean, it's one way right. to put it. I, right? I've got some thoughts on that. And, and why is New England good so every single year? And now one reason that we've talked about is, is Tom Brady. Yeah, no, that's the fr- I had this conversation yesterday, and the first reason given is QBs. I mean, there's so much autocorrelation. You land a franchise quarterback, possibly by chance. Mm-hmm. You're the Indianapolis Colts, and you happen to be bad in 1997. You get the first pick in the 1998 draft. Two player generations later, you happen to be bad again. And then bad, and there and, you go. And you got Andrew Luck. And that, and now you have basically, you know, you're going to end up at 35 years worth of great quarterbacking. And then, and then, so essentially, what you're saying, if I if I were to put it in almost a statistical context, the background is averages out to similarity across the, the individual teams, and this one position drives so much of the outcome. Yeah, and we can overtell that story, but I think it's a huge variable. And that's why you don't pay for a running back like with the with the Steelers or haven't signed a contract yet. Historically, this is a hard one because it seems to be coming back around a little bit right now. But but for the last whatever, we I can tell you the data from the '90s did not support paying for a running back, and people finally learned that lesson and quit paying for running backs. Not least because they get injured, and so you don't want to put too many eggs in that basket. But there are obviously other factors, and what what you learn pretty quickly when you start working with professional sports teams is the quality of ownership varies dramatically. And people, it's you really end up feeling sorry for fans of some teams because they're just kind of screwed. And it's because ownership, some owners are just not good stewards of that franchise, and probably more bad than good in in football anyway. And ownership varies across sports. So basketball, for example, we've seen more turnover in basketball. More new, young, sophisticated owners, owners have come into that league. I, I can tell you, Vasu, and he made no secret of it, is trying to buy a basketball team. <laughs> All right, go Vasu. Yeah, and, That's and great. He's, he's going to need a little bit more. A than billion Blake. and a half. Yeah, it's about. 1. He's 5. not buying it himself. And the, actually, the, the story that he's telling, and I'm listening, I'm tossing this out to our listeners because he's looking for a billionaire. If you've got a billion dollars, <laughs> that's that's one billion, and it needs to be. You what's, can't borrow it. So you have to have it. So the thing about buying a basketball team, and I know some guys in this business, they don't come up very often. And so you, it's a it's a it's a multi, it's a long term uncertain prospect to ever be able to pull that off, even when you have the money. That's right. So the problem is the rule, the league rules uh, prevent you from borrowing it. You have to. Ha- you can only borrow only two hundred million dollars. Okay. And so you need to put together a whole team of people, who, and uh, and I think you, he or, needs one billion. Yeah. So okay. he's got about a. He's got the. He's interesting because he's got connections to the Indian community which yeah. is extremely wealthy and there's straight strict limits on bringing money out of india so uh, you can do it you probably can do it with basketball so he's looking to, to buy a team okay well that's cool he's been very successful but I, so far. before we get to the end of, i mean speaking of money and the role of money just off the line is this incredible trade or not trade uh, transfer uh, transfer yeah. of 
possibly the best uh, future best soccer player one, in the world. One of the one of the highest profile players in the world just got transferred. He, apparently, as of this morning, he's accepted the transfer. So, Paris Saint Paris Saint Germain is buying essentially Neymar from Barcelona, and they've been working on this for a few weeks. And it, and the, and basically, Barcelona left it up to Neymar. And as of this morning, the reports are that he's saying goodbye to those guys. So, one of the storied clubs out there, Barcelona is losing one of their highest play, highest this profile. This is incomprehensible players. to Americans. For, for the, the, the amount of the transfer fee is two hundred and twenty-two million dollars. So that's is what, it euros or euros. Two hundred twenty. So that's so, probably two hundred and sixty. Yeah, maybe not quite that much. One point one, one point one five. Um, but yeah, sure, big, big money. And you know, the soccer economics are funny because it's not clear to me. I mean, mostly Neymar's left to negotiate his own compensation. So it's the the share of that is is ambiguous and possibly not very much. But just the idea that one club would pay another club. I mean, it's just other for one numbers. human being. For one human being, <laughs> it's a big. The services and how long? I mean, permanent control. I mean, what are you getting out of this? Yeah, I, I, I can't begin to speak. Is it to like that. the reserve clause? And in, in, in uh, it, you know, they, they seem to have clubs seem to have quite a bit of control over these players. I mean, they buy and sell them for these money. Part of the economics of soccer in Europe is you grow players and sell. This is literally one of the most important. This is economics. an asset. Yeah, yeah unbelievable human asset. Well, you know, they get he's compensated. Well compensated. I don't, I don't, I don't have, that's not, not any complaint. Not, <laughs> not, not too big a concern. So, Adi, just before I lose you, we're rolling into football season. You have evolved a little bit in your taste for football. As you think about, you know, season's going to start up in about a month or so. What are you looking forward to? What are you interested in about football? Pro, college, teams, players, anything? <laughs> it's, it's, uh, I'm, I'm always interested in my Jets. I've been a fan of the Jets since I was a kid, but I don't have any hope or any. Yeah. In fact, I think they're going to be expected to be historically bad. Um, I don't know whether you have a. So I'm I don't looking, have an update for you. Update right from now. that. I'm very interested on Tom Brady because I'm going very short on Brady. Oh wow! I, I've decided that he's got to hit the wall, and every year he goes on, that wall gets closer. Okay. And of course, I'm interested in the Eagles because I live in Philadelphia. And you just spent some time with Alec Hallaby. I do. And, so and I, like to see, I wish the them well. Orbit. Absolutely. All right. Well, Adi, thank you for being with me this hour despite running Wharton Moneyball Academy. Good luck with the guys. I will see you guys in the classroom tomorrow. We are staying here, though, for another hour. We've got another two quarters to go on Wharton Moneyball. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 Eastern. Coming to you from Huntsman Hall, the SiriusXM Business Radio Studio on Locust Walk here at the University of Pennsylvania. This is Cade Massey hosting On My Own for the next hour. My guys have abandoned me. This is one of the few times I've ever been here on my own. But thankfully for you guys, we have a couple of guests lined up for the next half hour. If you want to ring us while we're talking to these guests, feel free to do that. You can ring us at one 844 Again, one 844 Nine four two seventy eight sixty six. You can also email us, especially if you're listening one of the times we're replayed. That's a great way to reach out to us, but also live. You can drop us a note. We'll pick it up. Businessradio at SiriusXM.com. Businessradio at SiriusXM.com. By the way, you can follow us on Twitter. The handle is at WMoneyball, at WMoneyball. 
we uh, poke around up there, keep you try to keep you apprised on some things going on in the world of sports analytics. We follow our our guests, and so we have a pretty interesting community building over there in the world of sports analytics. Follow us there at W Moneyball. In the next half hour, delighted to welcome to this show Ty Salter. Ty is a writer for a number of places, but notably 538, where I believe he caught our team's attention. And uh, we get to talk football. I'm excited. Ty, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me on. I'm delighted to have you on, Ty. I'm gonna, I need a little background on you, man. I know some of the guys at 538, I've not, we've not had you on that I know of. And um, it's the time of year to have folks like you on, so I'm delighted to have you. But can you tell me where you're coming from. Can you tell me how you got involved with 538? What's been your little journey into the world of sports analytics? Uh, yeah, uh, well, a long, strange one. Uh, I'm uh, from Lansing, Michigan. Went to Michigan State, uh, but actually for politics. Um, uh, then uh, I, I got a little bit into the world of politics and realized it wasn't for me. So I went into IT, uh, started a family, um, and I did some uh, database development, and on the side started blogging about football um, and that kind of snowballed. I went full-time uh, as a sports analyst in 2012, uh, but had already been doing quite a bit of work, uh, you know, freelance and elsewhere up until that point. Um, so I, I like to fall back on some of the, you know, the data-driven stuff, uh, but obviously I also write about just straight-up football analysis and, and uh, whatever else I feel like all the way up to and including Shark Tank recaps for the comeback.com. Oh, fantastic. That's great. That's uh, negotiation and sports analytics, man. That's, that's, uh, those are two of my favorites. Good stuff. Absolutely. Ty, can, can you tell our listeners where they can follow you on Twitter? I know you've got an active account up there. I do. I tweet a lot and about a lot of stuff. Uh, whatever comes to mind, it's, it's at Ty Schalter, T-Y-S-C-H-A-L-T-E-R. Wonderful. And how long have you been writing for 538? Uh, I started late last season, um, towards the end of the regular season, through the playoffs and Super Bowl. I was part of their Super Bowl live blog. Did a couple of pieces over the off season. Uh, now we've done these, uh, you know, these divisional previews last week. I got another one in the works right now. Um, hopefully, I'll be writing regularly all throughout the season. There. Alrighty. Your your loyalties in football run. You mentioned Michigan State, and I'm guessing if you're in that part of the world, you're probably a Lions fan. Is that the way it goes? Yeah. In fact, uh, my my blog, my independent blog, was called the Lions in Winter. Uh, <laughs> oh. It was it was literally it was literally started the morning after the Lions went 0 and 16. Oh my God. Um, well, and and I just. You know, I'd been thinking about doing it forever, and I just woke up one morning and I had to, like, dig my car out of, you know, <laughs> like a negative eight-degree day. And I just, like, you know, I, I can't stand it anymore. Like, I have to figure out, like, why I still love this game and this team and still have these feelings. So I just took my lunch break and, and blogged it all out, and, and that started the ball rolling. Have you have you learned something about that? Is it cognitive dissonance? What What is it? Because you're experience there is representative of a few different fan bases but man you're almost the you're almost the paradigm of it the lions fan <laughs> yeah you know and i mean it's you know, there's there's tribalism and and you know localism and, and all those sorts of things you tie up so much of your identity with that you know the money you spend branding yourself um uh, you know the hats and the clothes and t-shirts and those sorts of things and just you know that investment of time and experience whether it's watching tv um you know with your family going to games 
Um, you know, and, and, and as silly as it is to think that you're, you know, rooting for laundry, you know, whoever puts on that jersey and right. goes out there, you're rooting for. Um, but you're rooting with somebody, and, and, and it means something. And I think for Lions fans, and certainly there are plenty of other fan bases that, that have had experiences similar to this, but when you go through so much losing, um, you know, and, and you see your team, the butt of jokes, nationally you know and especially growing up where you know we didn't have the internet we didn't have a you know stream of, of coverage of just our team you kind of waited all week for maybe the the offhand comment or 30 seconds that, <laughs> totally. that ESPN might throw totally. your way and throw right. a bone to the Lions fans uh, let's make a crack about the quarterback thing okay now we're moving on and that's all you got <laughs> and no, no 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 you always had the early game on Thanksgiving day you got oh, that yeah. too yeah, that's like yeah, the yeah. best thing the Lions have, more or less. Unfortunately, well, you absolutely, had, you had, and, and all week before and after, everybody complaining about having to watch the Lions. <laughs> so yeah, you get that, and and then uh, you just want to see it come to fruition. You want to see, uh, you, so yeah, you, you put on the clothes and you cheer. So give me give me some of the high points, uh, the Detroit Lions high points. I think I have one in mind, one long, impressive one, but there's kind of one. But tell me, as a Lions, where's the pride? Where's the happiness? When you need to think good thoughts, where do you go? Oh, yeah. Um, well, certainly there's you know individual greatness. Barry yeah. Sanders. Barry Sanders um, has to be the top, right? Ab- At least modern absolutely. era. Absolutely. Barry Sanders. Um, you know, there, there were some moments. Um, you know, Chris Spielman is a player that yeah, sure. we love and revere. And I, I was kind of disappointed to grow up and find out that, you know, he didn't quite have the reputation elsewhere that he had here. But the stories of, of you know, what he put his body to and the sacrifices he made to the game. Yeah. By the way, he's, really a, he's a great analyst. He's a good person to still um, watch on the football front, listen to yeah. on the football front. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. And so. Uh, you know, and, and his you know his personal story, his his, his book is excellent. His wife and, and her fight with cancer, all mm-hmm. that sort of stuff. But um, you know, and then uh, you know, sort of the the late nineties, um, there are a couple of playoff runs in there. The nineteen ninety five season where Scott Mitchell put it all together for one season under Tom Moore, who would of course go on to be the architect of those great Colts offenses with Peyton Manning, and now uh, you know continues to excel in Arizona. Uh, so you know that that was that was nice, and then really. You hit 2000 um, and, and Matt Millen, and it gets real, real thin in terms of moments of pride. Um, but, you know, I mean, obviously under Jim Schwartz, there was that, you know, from 0 and 16 to 2 wins to 6 wins to 10 wins, and there were some great moments in there, and you really felt like they were building towards something. And, and then it turns out that, you know, not so much. Well, what's um, the I think, what's the forecast this year? Let's let's move let's move into 2017 sure. and sure. you know is is you know you must if you, if your blog is called the Lion in Winter then there's all kinds of cheap Game of Thrones connections we can make here. But <laughs> are you still is winter here? Is winter going to be long? What's the story oh, now? Oh, oh yeah, I, I haven't written regularly on that blog since becoming a full time analyst. But it, 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 I use the the winter jokes all the time, and 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 you can make it sort of a running metaphor. Um, but yeah, you know, it, it's difficult because a lot of Matthew Stafford had a lot of comeback wins last year, uh, most ever in NFL history. Uh, but if you actually look at it, what happened was it was sort of an intentional, almost a rope-a-dope strategy that, you know, they went out and tried to outscore people over the first month of the season, went one and three, and realized their pass defense was so miserable. They were dead last in pass coverage DVOA. And number two wasn't close. Um, <laughs> okay. So it's something like 38%. 
uh, worse than an average pass coverage team. And so what they did was they went ball control, a lot of dump offs, a lot of screen passes. I believe Stafford led the league in attempts uh, at or behind the sticks oh, wow. uh, because they didn't okay. have a run game either. Okay, uh, and and so they were like, okay, let's go out, get the first touchdown, put on the brakes, try to cover up the defense, slow it down, and then if we're within one score at the end, you know, run the two minute offense and wow. see if we can we can put ahead. And it worked over and over and over again. So a lot of people point to that and go, okay, there's going to be regression. Um, there then you know, but really, if you look at the teams that outperformed their expected wins, Pythagorean wins, whatever, however you want to look at that, uh, the Lions are not uh, even in the top five of that group. Okay. Um, so if they improve the defense a little bit, uh, and and I'm not, they're leaning very hard on a couple of rookies to do that, especially as I put in my piece, Jared Davis, the linebacker, middle linebacker, he's gonna have a lot of responsibility because the coverage in the middle of the field was miserable last year. They can get a little bit better on defense little bit better pass protection they drafted a couple weapons signed a couple guys um and, and if they can change that philosophy and go downfield a little bit more i think they're going to be significantly better um overall as a unit how that translates to the reality of the schedule that's where the randomness of the nfl comes in right 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 and of course who is in your division which talk about randomness some folks are in very difficult divisions others not so much how does the we're talking about the nfc north right how does that look for you guys yeah, you know, the Green Bay Packers, um, basically the analysis boils down to they still have Aaron Rodgers, and right. that's true. Uh, but um, the Lions poached uh, guard T.J. Lang from the Packers, uh, so he moves off that line that was phenomenal, the best in, in pass protection, one of the best pass protection units in recent memory last year, and one of the big reasons wow. uh, you know, Aaron Rodgers was running around behind there for a long, long time. Ty, can, I, st- can I stop you there for a second? Um, yeah. In the world of advanced analytics – are there interesting ways to measure pass protection now that we didn't used to have? Because the bit, you know, we call sacks, right? Or and and then maybe you can go yeah. into pressures or hurries. But what, what's what's cutting edge these days on characterizing an offensive line's ability to protect the passer? Uh, you know, you're usually looking at average time to throw. Okay, but that's also <laughs> that's difficult because it relies on several other things, including scheme and quarterback. You know, I mean, you can protect all day long, but um, you know, if you have a fantastic pass protecting offensive line, but your quarterback still holds on to it too long, um, then you're going to get this really, really long time to throw. If your pass protection is excellent and your quarterback gets rid of it quickly, it's going to be harder to show up there. Uh, so there's, there's a lot of things going into that. It's difficult to do. You end up relying a lot on pro football focus uh, grades, which are, of course, subjective okay. and have come with their own. Okay. Uh, you know, baggage. Is this an area where motion tracking should be able to help us out? I mean, shouldn't you be able to come up with some, you know, geographically defined measure for the pocket itself and how long it exists? Oh, yeah. And you, you also look at, um, you know, the pressures and hurries. You know, it's very outcome based right now mm-hmm. as opposed to the shape of the pocket, um, um, the distance to the quarterback, um, you know, you know, proximity. You certainly could do stuff along those lines. Um, if that exists now, I don't see it. But I really feel football is is just starting to take teetering steps down that path. Um, you know, I'm not sure. Goes. I'm not sure they're taking steps. I think they might still be in the crawling phase. There are like a yeah. few teams that are trying to like you know maybe stand up while holding their parents' hands. I mean, it's just the technology is there and the league is highly conflicted on what it wants to do with it. So just to let folks know, what happens now is that the league provides teams 
their data from each game on their side of the ball. So if you're on offense, you get offensive data. If you're on defense, you get defensive data. You don't even see what's going on, the motion tracking for the other team. So after every game, the league gives to the teams those data. And you can do with it what you want. A lot of teams aren't doing anything with it. And then some teams do their own thing with their practice data. So they'll they'll put chips in on all their players, and they'll follow everything that happens, and they might process that data on their own. But it's completely up to the teams, and there's huge I say there's huge variance. There's actually not huge variance. I think most folks aren't doing anything, but there are some teams that are really trying to figure it out. Yeah, it's a lot of it's it's a lot to, to get to, and without a lot of uh, you know models already out there for teams to follow, it is a copycat league. And if nobody's out there doing it yeah. and talking about doing it and having success with it, uh, then you know it's it's tough for other teams to follow along. I do I do want geographic data because one of the things you run into with the analytics is playing on you know a yard is a long way that is not a lot of resolution when you're trying to talk about that's um, interesting so players. so you know I, I at one level sure yeah right on another level really so what what is it you want what do you want greater resolution for yeah obviously the the, the pass protection to be able to quantify that because so much of that comes from pass protection in, the, in today's okay. game okay run blocking and also, you know, to me, I think a lot of the, the, the job of the running back, where that comes down to, you know, uh, football outsiders does this adjusted line yards where it kind of goes, okay, we can assume if a running back gets stuffed, that's probably the offensive line's fault. We can assume if they get into the second level, all the yardage after, you know, five, six, seven yards downfield, we can assume that's the running back breaking it wide open. Yep. In the middle, yeah, it's hard black to box, and we'll call it fifty-fifty. You know, that's really kind of what it comes down to. And most, and, and most of what yeah. happens is in the middle, unfortunately. Yeah, exactly. And so, how you credit running backs? How you like? This is one of the things that's very tough for me. Um, in the five thirty-eight article um, over in the NFC South, I put Adrian Peterson as one of the impact players because Sean Payton absolutely believes that Adrian Peterson is going to be a, a game-changing addition to that team, and and. There are some numbers that kind of point in that direction, but overall, statistically, Mark Ingram's run very well. There's not a lot of holes in his game. He doesn't fumble. Um, you know, he did have a, a lot of yards before contact, which usually means anybody in that system then could have a lot of yards before contact. But um, you know, so maybe Adrian Peterson could do better. There's not there's not a lot of concrete stuff to point at. Um, you know, so, and, and Ingram's gotten better year over year over year. But Peyton has never been confident in Ingram, never given him a full time workload, or, or at least appeared comfortable to do so. So now you know Adrian Peterson. Uh, he said in their free agent sort of wooing meeting that. Peyton did 98% of the talking about how important it was that Peterson come in, how much he could add to that offense. And until we see it on the field, it's it's very difficult to point at a number and go, this is why they're not happy with Mark Ingram and Adrian Peterson is going to do better. Mm-hmm. You, you talked in that piece about the seeming, at least at a superficial level, mismatch between the offense they run and and what where Peterson has excelled in the past. I mean, the, the, the Breeze-Peterson combination is not obvious, it's true. But you also worked yourself into kind of being a believer that maybe it's true. Can you say more about how you think they might, What best case, how do they fit together? Yeah, well, you know, they, obviously, the, the New Orleans Saints, over the course of Sean Payton's tenure there, have used a ton of shotgun, and it's what Breeze is most comfortable in. But they were actually um, one of the fewest of shotgun teams last year they used it with the fewest least frequency um i'm trying to remember off the top of my head it was in the, the, the bottom handful of teams that use shotgun the most 
And they also had practically no performance delta between shotgun and under center, which is, uh, you know, unusual. Uh, most teams are usually much better in one or the other. Uh, and uh, as I put, the Patriots notably uh, were over 40% better, uh, more effective in shotgun than under center. So, wow. um, yeah. So in this case, just going by last season and how they ran their offense, Adrian Peterson actually is a good fit for what they did. Is that what they want to do? Is that how they want to be? Uh, is this an evolution of Peyton back towards uh, a more power-heavy run game and, and take some pressure off through Breeze? Um, I, you know, I'm not I'm not quite sure, but it's, it's interesting to see that, that that pattern, that usage pattern, is definitely different from two, three, four years ago under Sean Payton, and, and it's much better suited to what Adrian Peterson likes to do. Right. We're talking to Ty Salter. He is a football writer, pro football writer, at a number of places, but including 538. You can follow him on Twitter. His, uh, his account there is at Ty Salter, T- at T-Y-S-C-H-A-L-T-E-R. He, Ty, you recently had this article on big moves uh, in, in on both sides, AFC and NFC, possibly season-changing moves. This Adrian Peterson trade was one of them. It is. It's just you know when these when these when these big high-profile players change teams, it takes a little while to get your head around it. I mean, thinking about Peterson playing for somebody else is is <laughs> hard to get you know hard to imagine. So it's got it's, it is. That's a big one. That's a big storyline. That's interesting. And of course, the Saints have been kind of underperformed. Breeze has to be on his last legs, right? So if they're going to do something, this is this is presumably near the end of the window. What are some of the other big storylines and big question marks you think uh, you're going to have your attention uh, on as we go into the season? Yeah, this I mean, it's almost started with working with my editor, um, Jeff Foster. Uh, I was looking at Joe Flacco because Joe Flacco obviously has sort of lived and died with the deep ball over his time in Baltimore. And over the last two seasons, he has almost completely disappeared from his game. Between the injuries at wide receiver, the lack of consistency at wide receiver, um, the unavailability of Dennis Pitta, who keeps uh, unfortunately re-injuring and re-injuring that right. head. Right. Um, uh, you know, so that he hasn't had that deep ball to go to, and so he has really struggled, and the offense has really struggled. And adding Jeremy Macklin kind of gives them that deep ball dimension again, assuming Macklin's at 100%. And, and, you know, there's a lot of reason to believe he can. But at the same time, um, you know, Mike Williams has never been a consistent guy. He's really a one big play a game, one or two big plays every one or two weeks type guy. And then, uh, you know, Rashad Perriman, who they are counting on to take a step forward, uh, tweaked his hamstring again yesterday. And you start going, okay, is he ever going to be able to contribute? So right. Baltimore, if you add that deep ball back to their game, Suddenly, in a in a you know a division full of question marks, they become pretty scary because that defense is still very good. And despite the loss of uh, John Urschel, friend of football and analysts everywhere, um, you, you know they still have a good offensive line, and and the pieces are kind of in place if Joe Flacco can get back to where he's been. Mm-hmm two, three, four, five years ago in terms of throwing the ball downfield and, and scoring enough points to put that defense in a position to be aggressive and win. How how far can they ride a really good defense? They, they, were, they were solid. My impression is that they were solid last year, but they're even more excited about what, what, what this year looks like. And they, obviously they went heavy in the draft with defensive players. It, you know, they do have a model. They do have a history of let's just build a great defense and see how far it can take us. In, in the current NFL, how optimistic would you be if they had, say, a top 10 defense, maybe even a top, I don't know, six or seven if things went really well, and a middling at best offense? <sighs> 
yeah, that, that's tough, and that's kind of the situation where they keep finding themselves hovering around that 500 area and, and hoping they're the ones that make it in. Um, you know, it really depends on the Pittsburgh Steelers. You know, they've had a ton of churn at the skill positions. Ben Roethlisberger keeps talking about retiring, which is not great when you think about a guy who, you know, his his arm and his durability and his ability to get away from the rush has been such a big part of, of why they're able to do well. Right. Players, you know, and, and the offensive line, you know, they just re-signed Alejandro Villanueva, uh, but you look at that, that line and they have not invested high draft picks in that line, or at least not ones that have worked out over Ben Roethlisberger's career. They've not invested huge free agent dollars. They've relied on his ability to get away from the rush. Right. And then they've invested and reinvested in that defense. So the Steelers and Ravens weirdly are two teams, two of the few teams that have a consistent model and identity of how they build yeah. their team over the last 10 years. And it's the same model. <laughs> well, uh, you know, so. it was only, you know, five or six years ago, it felt like this is the best rivalry in the NFL. I mean, not even yeah. close. And their games would be, you know, just stop what you're doing and go watch it. Cause you're not going to see that intensity anywhere else. And it's a shame because they both, they're both kind of equally matched still, but just at a lower level. So it's not quite as much fun. Um, Absolutely. The, 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 the rest of that division is still kind of interesting, especially on the Browns. I mean, I've, we've talked about them here and there on the show because they are analytics forward more so than most NFL teams. Do you have any sense of whether how much of a bounce they're going to get this year? They, they might finally start moving in the right direction, it seems. I like it. I like it a lot. I like the Browns. I like what they're doing. And last year, you know, you really got the sense this was, quote-unquote, really a three- or four-win team. Um, so they caught some bad breaks, and obviously, anytime you're starting, I mean, I started six different quarterbacks. Last was year. it that many? My God, that's not even it was, fair. It was, it was at least four or five. I, I have to go back and you know, I'm counting on my fingers right now. But yeah, it, you know, between um, RG3, Josh McCown, Cody Kessler, I mean, they were going way deep down the bench, and you know, Kessler's a guy you think is going to be able to contribute. Um, Brock Osweiler is in the mix, um, but Deshaun Kaiser, he's he's a really intriguing second-round pick. Um, And, you know, I mean, you talk about Moneyball. If you can end up with the guy who solves the problem, all of the number one overall, top five, first-round picks that this organization has thrown at quarterback Mm. since Bernie Kosar, if Kaiser ends up being the guy <laughs> that solves the problem, yeah. talk about a tremendous use of resources, um, and especially to go ahead and, and get the best player in the draft and get off uh, the top. Um, I, I really like what they're doing, um, and I think they're going to get a bounce this year, certainly. And obviously, if they go and get three, four wins, it's going to be a bounce. But I think they're going to be significantly better this year than they were last year. I have a lot of respect for Hugh Jackson as an offensive architect okay. um, and some of the skill position talent. Um uh, you know, you're looking for some steps forward in a couple of spots. You're projecting in a couple of spots. Um, you know, David Njoku is a guy that, that could be a big physical weapon, big mismatch. Um, and so uh, you start to look at that and you go, okay, put all these pieces together and, and they could make some noise, especially when you're looking at, you know, the Bengals really fell off last year and they looked significantly worse on paper this year. A lot of age in the defense, disaster on the offensive line. They lost a lot of starters with no help. Um, they've, they've also lost a lot of skill position talent over the years. So um, you, you look at this and this is sort of an AFC North that's, that's ripe for the picking and the Browns have, have done surprisingly well within the division, even when they haven't been good on mm-hmm. paper, you know, good in the rest of the league over the past couple of years. So I do like the Browns to get wow. a big bounce this All year. Right. I, I, I'm, I'm not talking playoffs yeah. necessarily, but 
six, seven wins. Mary. Wow, that would be that would be that would be re- received with rejoicing there. I'm sure. So yeah. one one other AFC note that caught my attention in your note in your in your article, your five thirty eight piece was the what was was the Raiders. So, so of course they did this Marshawn Lynch thing, or he did it, which is crazy and fun. But you yeah. talked in other ways very positively about the Raiders. Can you tell us what you expect out of those guys? Yeah, and of course, you know, again, quarterback-driven league, quarterbacks, that's the straw that serves the drink. Um, you know, Carr got to get back 100% and, and be the player that they that he was and even take a step forward, you know, for as much as we rejoiced over his development and his ability, um, you know, he isn't peak Peyton Manning. He isn't peak Tom Brady quite yet, and so, and so he's got developing and maturing still have to go, but they've got they've got players, they've got skill position talent, got offensive line. Um and I, I love the identity that they've put together. They knew exactly what they wanted to do. They knew exactly the kind of player that they want to have up front and how they want to attack defenses. Um and I think Marshawn Lynch is really well suited to that. Um and, and what's really weird is we talk about and I've talked about this in the article, Latavius Murray as a boomer bust home run hitter. But he really was not that in 2016 in any way. He didn't have a lot of open field runs. He didn't have a lot of big plays, um, and he had an okay success. You know, better than better than average, better than median success rate among starting running backs, depending on what, what you want to call a starting running back in the year 2017. Um, but but Marshawn Lynch, obviously, much better success rate, much better at breaking tackles, and and much more potential for open field yards and second level yards. So. Uh, he really can add that level of, of respect for the run game that they want to have, especially considering the big physical offensive line. Question's going to come down to the defense. Yeah. The defense has been kind of getting it done with sacks and turnovers and big plays as opposed to consistently high-level defense. Um, and they they sort of not played to their competition but let other teams dictate tempo. The other team wants to have a shootout, we'll have a shootout. If the other team wants to slow it down, we can slow it down. And obviously, they won a whole lot of games that way. But in the end, it's going to be difficult to consistently win when other teams are setting the tempo. I and mean, when you have a great offense and an AFE defense, sometimes you don't get to make that choice. Right. So that's something they'll have to they'll have to fix uh, if they want to continue to get back to where they were, take the crown back from the Chiefs, and make some real noise in the AFC playoffs. Well, I think it's fun. I think the league's better when the Raiders are are competitive. So it's been fun yeah. to see them get a little bit stronger the last couple of years. But the, the idea of Lynch, Carr, Amari Cooper, and Michael Crabtree really hitting on all cylinders is exciting. That'd be a fun fun team to watch kind of regardless if you're not too concerned kind of regardless of their defense that's a fun that's a fun offense to watch two last questions for you one nfl one not nfl everyone around here wants to know is carson Wentz for real you know the there's so much love there's so much enthusiasm first year quarterbacks don't do very well and if you look at the stats they, they weren't very favorable for him what's your take what do you think the eagles have on their hands there yeah, and obviously, um, you know, a lot of dump-offs, a lot of easy stuff. Um, they made it easy on him uh, at the beginning of the year, especially. And you look and go, okay, um, you know, some of the, the, the flat-out results early in the season maybe tempered a little bit by that because he didn't go downfield as much. But for young quarterbacks, it's often getting those little things right and that consistency um, that can be the difference between, uh, you know, <laughs> success and failure or, or mediocrity. And right, one. right. You know, that's... that's Blake Bortles, you know, his inability to do that and just get the ball to his outstanding skill position talent reliably and repeatedly is why they can't get drives going. They can't right. convert on third down. So that's a, that's a very positive thing. I think there's a lot of reason to be excited. His work ethic, his intelligence, 
Um, you know, they went out and actually committed to getting him weapons this year. Alshon Jeffrey was on my list. And I think the addition of Torrey Smith, who, you know, is never going to be a number one guy, but as the field stretching sort of Alvin Harper to Alshon Jeffrey, yeah. if Jeffrey can stay healthy, a lot of reasons to be excited about his development. I think he's on a very positive track. That's great. That's exciting. All right. So you've got more written there about the NFL, but before we lose you, I want to ask you about your hometown guys. Michigan State has run into some trouble off season. They've also run into some trouble on the field with in-state rivals, Michigan, for example. You know, I, it's always fun to pull for those guys. They're a little bit of an underdog, great coach. What are you expecting, not even just this year, because it's kind of hard to forecast much this year, but do you think he's going to be able to turn it around there, especially with Harbaugh doing so well in in uh, Ann Arbor? Yeah, and, you know, there are a lot of things that came together, um, a couple, uh, a lot of talent, especially on the offensive and defensive lines, both lost kind of at the same time, plus a couple injuries, plus the disciplinary scenarios. Um, so you end up with the cupboard really, really bare at defensive line, yeah. which is one of one of the big reasons they've been successful over you know the past six, seven, eight years. Um, but this has happened before under D'Antonio. You know, he had a surprise losing season out of nowhere. He had a bunch of disciplinary issues right around at that time, and people started going, "Ooh, I don't know." But he pulled it together. You know, one thing is D'Antonio can not only recruit, but we talk about building a model. He understands the kind of players, the two- and three-star players, um, that he can project and go, okay, right now this kid is a two-star defensive tackle, but in five years he's going to be a difference-making junior tight end. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and that ability to see in young kids the kind of players that he wants for his system I think is going to suit him well. And you know, he was able to build that when there are other programs in the state and in the area doing well, and I think he's going to be able to get back to that. I don't know when the Michigan State Spartans are going back to the Rose Bowl, back to the you know national championship semifinals. Uh, but but I think he's going to continue to be successful, win a lot of games, go to a lot of bowl games, and be in the mix in the division. Well, that's optimistic. It's good to hear that. Here's a ridiculous talk radio show question for you: uh, Who's more likely to be coaching at their current school five years from now, D'Antonio or Harbaugh? Um, <laughs> I I continue to believe that Jim Harbaugh has unfinished business. Yeah. He's too young and too successful, yeah. too hot a name, and especially if they continue to have success. My completely unconnected, <laughs> yeah, non-reported uh, opinion is he's there to win Michigan a national title or get very close. And and when he believes that Michigan is, again, a self-sustaining football factory where there's coordinators that can take over, where there's recruits coming in, and, and he knows that if he walks away, it's going to continue to spin out, spin like a top and, and, and produce its own success again, I think that's when he's going to feel comfortable leaving. Um, and and I, think, I think there's unfinished business. I don't think he's there for the rest of his life. All right. Well, I love the, I love the optimism, both medium-term and long-term, on Michigan State, so that'll be fun to watch. Ty, appreciate you joining us. Wish you the best with your work. Love what you're doing. Hey, I appreciate it so much. Thanks for the opportunity to come on. Of course. That was Ty Salter. Ty's a writer at 538. You can follow him. You can find him on, on uh, tysalter.com. That's www.tyschalter.com. And you can follow him on Twitter. His handle there is at Ty Salter, at T-Y-S-C-H-A-L-T-E-R. That is three quarters of Wharton Moneyball. We still have a quarter to go. Come back and join us after the break. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. 
Two hours of Sports Analytics live every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 a.m. Eastern. Cade Massey hosting this morning. Audie Weiner was in for the first hour of the day. He's out teaching some teaching some kids sports analytics right now. Wharton Moneyball Academy underway. Two-week program here on campus. About 80 high school students come in. Competitive to get here. They have a great time coding, analyzing, talking sports guests that Audie's lined up, kind of mirroring the show's format in a way. Eric Bradlow, Shane Jensen, our collaborators, are away today. But some combination of us are. Shane, Eric, Audie, and Kate are here every Wednesday morning. You can join the conversation. Give us a ring, 844-942-7866. That's 844-942-7866. Matt Dots, producer Matt Dots on the board, ready for your phone call, ready for your email. You can drop an email businessradio at SiriusXM.com, businessradio at SiriusXM.com. We are open lines for the next half hour. You can give us a ring. We also have a guest. We usually have conversation here in the studio in the last half hour, but we have a guest today. Michael Bauman of The Ringer is joining us. And as far as I know, we've not had Michael on the show. I'm delighted to welcome Michael to the show. Good morning, Michael. Welcome aboard. Good morning. Michael, thanks for joining us. Need to talk with you about a few things, but first, I'd love a little background on where you are and how you got there. Is it true that you're in Houston, Texas? It is, uh, much to my chagrin. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, I'm uh, a staff writer at The Ringer. I'm one of two guys, along with Ben Lindbergh, who uh, primarily covers baseball. Before that, I was at Baseball Prospectus in Grantland, so, you know. Happy to be on the show. All right. So my producer tells me that you uh, that you're a South Jersey guy, as he said. Is that yeah. right? So how does the South Jersey? I mean, I don't think there are that many connections between South Jersey and Houston. How, what's the what's the path from South Jersey to Houston? Um, my wife uh, is uh, she's um, a postdoctoral fellow at Rice, so uh-huh. I work remotely, and there's a major league baseball team. Here, so yeah, I right. go wherever she can find a job, and unfortunately for me, that turns out to be <laughs> turns out to be Houston this time around. Hey, man! Well, Rice is a great school. What's she studying down there? Uh, she's a linguist. Okay, so, so she's uh, doing research on um, linguistic pedagogy and yeah, essentially how you teach kids a second language. You know, we had a we had a linguist in our PhD lab. He ran the lab. We were a bunch of behavioral science people, but he ran the lab, and it was always interesting. In my experience, it was always interesting to have a linguist around. They've always got the most mm-hmm. fun knowledge. And as a writer, come on, that has to be handy, right? Yeah. Well, primarily for me, she uh, she specializes in Russian. So the the big effect on my life is I can't watch the Hunt for Red October around her because <laughs> she just can't listen to Sean Connery speak Russian. So. Oh God. <laughs> All right. Well, if that's the worst thing about your marriage, then you're going to be in good shape. That's yeah, like, we're doing that, pretty good. <laughs> that's, that's great. All right, Michael. So um, how did you get involved in in sports analytics and sports journalism? Where did where was What was your background and how did you, how did you get where you are now? Um, you know, I've wanted to be a writer ever since I was a little kid. And, you know, I was a huge baseball fan growing up. So that was just sort of you know, journalism was ob- an obvious career path. And so that's what I studied in undergrad and, you know, got out and decided to uh, give the give uh, the academic route a, a go myself. So I got a master's in political science and sort of took a detour. And then, you know, I just found myself writing a lot about baseball on the side just for fun. And I guess there's, there's so much – one of the things that I loved about baseball as a kid was I um, – 
I was drawn to the history and the mythology of it, which is just so much deeper than uh, any of the other American sports. And but what goes along with that is that there's a lot of can, there's a lot of received wisdom. You know, there's at, you know particularly about ten years ago when the sabermetrics movement was really just sort of reaching mainstream consciousness. There wasn't a lot of empirical backing to the things that everybody just sort of took for granted. So, you know, I I guess, you know, I'm I've, I've got a little bit of a quantitative background, but you know, I'm I'm not in this for num for the numbers. You know, insofar as I'm interested in analytics, it's because I don't want to say things that are just factually wrong if I can avoid it. So, All right. You know, that's it's uh, an antidote to you know it, it's. Even now, it it is still pretty easy to just, you know, speak off the cuff. But, you know, my my interest is less in the numbers for the numbers' sake, but the numbers' ability to let me tell a more interesting and, and honestly more accurate story than I would be able to otherwise. Right. Well, the history at Grantland and, and Baseball Prospectus suggests that you're good with both. I mean, you can't do much at Baseball Prospectus without being fluent in numbers, but then Grantland and now The Ringer, these guys have always prized, you know, good journalism, good storytelling. What such yeah, a yeah. wonderful combination. Can you update the world on what The Ringer is and what you guys are trying to do and where it came from? Uh, yeah, it's a uh, – so – it's a, a sports and culture and technology site uh, based primarily in L.A. with offices an office in New York and staff writers like me scattered throughout the country. Um, it's uh, run by a lot of the same people who were behind Grantland. Uh, so our editor-in-chief, Sean Fennessy, uh, was a Grantland guy. Obviously, the, the big name on the, um, on the marquee is Bill Simmons. Uh, and so we've got – a uh, combination of blogs and long-form journalism and uh, a robust podcast network. I'll be recording a, an episode of the Ring Around MLB show later this morning. Um, so, you know, it's – we, you know, we, we cover TV. You know, our Game of Thrones coverage is pretty big. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of basketball, a lot of football, and, and some baseball too. Mike, this isn't a sports business show or even really that much of a business show, but we are business school, and, and you can't talk about something like The Ringer in the current context of sports journalism without wondering, you know, why is it that it seems to be doing well, at least surviving, maybe thriving, while sports writers from almost every place else are being cut? And it's just a really tough time in that industry. What what do you feel like the ringers thriving and if so what are the what are you guys doing differently than the traditional outlets are doing well i mean there's there's a limit to which i can talk about uh about the the company's you know business structure you know and so far as you know it's it's, it's not my bailiwick i guess i guess you'd say um you know i i think we're we just yeah i don't want to act like we're you know special like we're immune to the to something that happened to you know, like what happened to to vice or um or the layoffs at espn because you know a lot of us is you know we're we're all working writers we've all been through that at, at one you know at a one job or another you know whether you know for for me it was at grantland or you know there are other ex espn people ex sports illustrated people ex gawker people there so you know we you know we know which which direction the you know, yeah, we're we're aware that this is happening in the in the industry, and we're you know we appreciate that. But you know, I, I for for our part, you know, we're just trying to be, you know, be creative, be on top of stuff, be, 
you know, produce a, a good product. And I, you know, we've got um, some good business end guys like Sean and Jeff Chow um, who are taking care of us. So I've got faith in them and, uh, you know, we'll see where this takes us. All right. Well, we appreciate the work you're doing. Wish you the best with it. We're talking to Michael Bauman. Michael is a writer with a staff writer with uh, the Ringer, you can you can. By the way, bef- before we forget, you can follow him. You can find him on the on the on the Ringer site, but you can also follow him on Twitter. Uh, Michael's handle at Twitter is at mj underscore bauman. Bauman's b a u m a n n at mj underscore bauman. Um, baseball is is the main expertise. There's been some interesting moves in baseball, to say the least. Some headline grabbing moves. What you know now that you've sat with it for a couple of days? What's your sense of the consequences of the big trades here the last earlier this week? Well, going into the weekend, there were really two teams that were way ahead of the pack in terms of record. And I think if you looked at the, if you looked at the roster, looked at the depth, then the, the Dodgers and the Astros were, were way out in front of everybody else. And, you know, um, Neil Payne of 538 has done some stuff about how this, this major league baseball season is very top heavy. And these are two teams on a really historic pace. And, the Dodgers went out and got you Darvish, who is the you know he's a rental, but he was the best player who changed teams at the at the deadline. Now they're looking at a playoff rotation of Clayton Kershaw, Darvish, and then you know Alex Wood, who was an All Star this year, Rich Hill, who was the best player to or best pitcher to to change teams at last year's deadline. They're leaving a lot of depth on the on the bench, so they're you know they're not injury proof. Obviously, Kershaw being on the DL now they're not going to feel great about that uh, until he's actually back in the, in the rotation and pitching seven or eight innings every, every five days. But, uh, you know, you can trust that to the Astros who fill the need by going out and getting a lefty in Francisco Liriano. But, you know, you look there, they've got injury concerns in their own rotation. They, you know, they probably could have used another reliever, whether that's Zach Britton or Brad Hand. So, you know, they're still in great shape. They're going to walk to the division title. They're going to win 105 games, but you know, it's, it's like you know, there's there's a there's a worry about them becoming the 2001 Mariners, whereas the the in, you know in terms of a team that won 110 games and didn't even win the pennant. Whereas the Dodgers, I mean, if they don't win the World Series this year, and they've come so close in the past few years, if they don't get it done now, it won't be because they didn't try hard enough. Mm-hmm. It won't be because the team wasn't good enough. Mm-hmm. You know, it, I feel like anytime we start talking about something being inevitable in sports it's a good time to step back and say, okay, hold on. Something, something unexpected is about to happen. Uh, Serena Williams, some of her, I think when she was about to close the grand slam last year was one of the most recent examples. Um, the, 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 the inevitability with which people are saying the Dodgers are going to walk out of the NL and, and all that is it, it makes me wonder, say, hold on. Baseball is still pretty unpredictable, right? Or, or is it not when you have a pitching staff like that and you can go short rotation in the playoffs do you really remove a lot of uncertainty? What What do you think it looks like? How How confident are you that they're going to come out of the NFL, and how confident are you that they will be that competitive for the World Series in the immediate future? Well, I think they'll be the favorites. You know what that's worth in baseball. You know, you look at baseball is so random because coming in with the best record, the season is so long over the course of 162 games. The you know best record can mean a lot of things. It can mean you're actually the best team at that moment, but it could also mean that you built up a huge lead. You sort right. of, you know, saunter to the finish. You, right. know, you don't know who's healthy. You don't know how your team matches up with, you know, with a certain playoff opponent. I mean, the, we looked at in, um, in 2014, the, 
the Oakland A's were the best team in baseball for most of the season, and they fell off at the very end and wind up in the wild card game against the Royals. And they're, you know, the Royals had a lot of, you know, I think they were still a better team than the Royals, but the Royals had a lot of speed. And the A's starter in that game, John Lester, and their catcher, uh, Derek Norris, just couldn't control the running game, and that was it. And that was the difference. And, you know, they're just – there are factors like that where, where matchups do do matter a lot in playoff baseball. To say nothing of, you contrast it to something like basketball, where the gap between the teams uh, is greater to begin with, but it's a high-scoring game. So a lot of that randomness is going to iron itself out, which is why in basketball you could see that Cavs-Warriors NBA Finals coming out from from six months out. <laughs> right. Whereas, you know, I don't know that, you know, did the Dodgers have a one-in-three chance of winning the World Series? I think that's about as about as good as I'd, I'd give okay. anybody. And, okay. you know, and they're, they're, um, you know, constructed the way they are, but the Astros, you know, the Astros are better than the normal second best team. And probably the Washington nationals are better than normal third best right. team. Right. And all of a sudden the Chicago Cubs are flying under the radar. Right, so, right, right. So actually know, good, good, good. Well, you've, easy. you've rejuvenated some of my interest in it. Um, the headlines can be a little, a little bit misleading. And of course, now it looks like we have a we have a pretty serious race in the AL East. Maybe some people will pay attention to that one. Maybe. Um, well, yeah, I think people are going to pay attention to a Yankees Red Sox. Yeah, race, exactly, sure. exactly. But I'll, but you mentioned the Cubs, and it was only I don't know two weeks ago or something. People were asking what's wrong with the Cubs, and you know, really wondering if they could turn it around. And then they've hit this streak. Do you what? What's your interpretation of the Cubs season? It's. I mean, it's been a disappointment. I think the, you could use the word hangover without uh, without too many people arguing. I mean, they're just by leaps and bounds the most talented team in that division. They weren't playing like it for for three or four months, and it was. You know, I reached a point where I stopped assuming that that they would do something like they they've done in the past couple of weeks. And you know, going out and adding Justin Wilson and Jose Quintana helps. But you know, this is this is mostly just about the guys that they had playing up to the hundred win potential that they showed last year and the year before that. So, you know, I think they're, they're back on the right track and, you know, they certainly don't match up well with the, with the Dodgers right now. They're starting pitching, which was just a huge asset for them last year has not been good this year. You know, Jake Arrieta has not been good and Quintana only does so much to smooth that over. So, you know, they'll be in it, you know, the, them and the, the Nationals will have every opportunity to knock off the the Dodgers in the playoffs, but you know we'll, you know it's they're they're not going to be the favorites like everybody seemed to think they were coming into the season. Right. So just to run down the numbers real quickly, Fangraphs current projection for the full season record. So Dodgers at one hundred eight, Astros at one hundred one, and then a drop down to the Nats at ninety five. And then a collection of folks right around ninety ninety. So the Cubs at ninety one, Indians ninety. Red Sox at 90, the Diamondbacks 89, Yankees and Rockies at 88. So a couple that you've been mentioning, Dodgers and Astros out front. I love what you said about the big season, though. Because it's such a big season, the end-of-year record can be misleading. And uh, so the we'll see what happens. There's still a lot, clearly a lot of baseball to play. The Astros are a story that we analytics-oriented folks are always keeping our eyes on. You know, we've been ever since Luno and Mejdal moved there from the cards and started rebuilding – People have been kind of we've been pulling for them certainly, and then they kind of got they got 
they got going faster than people thought they would, and now they're having this great season. What you're down there, you're you're you know just across town from them. What's what's your what's your sense of the Astros and 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 how they're looking? Not just this season, but teeing up for the next couple of years. Well, they're they're set up really well, and I think you know going into the tank the way they did, you know they they didn't draft all that well. You know they've considering how many high picks they had and how much money they had to spend. It was you know they did. A, you know, about par, you know, I, I think Correa was a great pick, but some of the, you know, some of their other number one picks, you know, Appel over Chris Bryant, while that was, you know, that was certainly defensible at the time has worked out, you know, <laughs> about as badly as you could have expected. And, you know, talk about the Brady Aiken situation and, you know, how that shook out for them. It's, it's a complicated, uh, complicated discussion. Um, but they gave themselves so many chances that they didn't have to be great scouts or great player development people to wind up with a, a team this deep. And, you know, the uh, the headliner for them is is they go 11 good big league hitters deep right now, and that's huge. And they've got positional flexibility with Alex Bregman and uh, Marwin Gonzalez and Yuli Gurriel and Jake Marisnik. And so... Michael, real quickly on that on that on that point you just said, I happened just randomly saw a TV screen in the last twenty four hours that showed the I think it was a batting average, so one of these surface stats batting average for the last three guys in the order, like seven, eight, nine, and the Astros were categorically different from everybody else. They were not only best, but they were best by like twenty points or something. Yeah, I mean that's it's just there's just not an easy out in that lineup, and and. That's not to say they don't have upside. Like, Jose Altuve is as good a hitter as there is in Major League Baseball right now. Correa's great. Springer's great. Um, you know, they get they get some power later on in the lineup as well. So it's it, – I, mean, I just don't know how you pitch to that lineup. And, and one thing they do do really well is A.J. Hinch is very good in putting his uh, – putting his uh, position players in a position to succeed. And get, and Marvin gives him a lot of flexibility just on his own uh, to pull guys out against tough matchups, to play platoons, to, to do a lot of situational stuff within the game. And I think that had a, a big role in them making the uh, the playoffs in 2015. But now he's doing that with a legitimately great, you know, true talent, 100-win wow. team right now. Michael, and can I ask you Dallas, a question about that? Yeah, you know, the Cubs got a lot of credit for that last year, and it seems like a, it's a relatively new thing, and it seems to matter more than I think some people thought it would, this positional flexibility. Are there other teams that are pushing it as much as these guys are? Is it? Uh, it seems like it's a tough thing to pull the off. The right? Astros are, are definitely doing it more than anybody else. I think just because their rosters are well suited to it. Yep. yep. Cleveland does. Uh, it does a pretty good job of you know it, they they platooned a lot going in the in the you know they had a pretty weak outfield on the way to the World Series last year. But Terry Francona, who for my money is the best manager in the game right now, mm. uh, platooned a lot. You know, was able to to get Rajai Davis in the games when when it suited him versus Tyler Naquin versus Lonnie Chisenhall. Um, and you know, the, a lot of what they, they do on the infield in terms of plugging holes is just Jose Ramirez fills a lot of holes by himself because he can play anywhere on the diamond and he's a middle-of-the-order hitter. So just having one guy like that allows a, a competent manager, a creative manager, to really put together, you know, put his nine best uh, hitters in the lineup in, in the American League at least uh, to put his nine best hitters in the lineup, regardless of defensive fit, and mm-hmm. I think you know those three teams are. You know, we think of them as three of the smarter teams in baseball. It's no accident that they're three of the the teams at the cutting edge of that. Right, and yeah, there's no accident that that's their roster. These things are done strategically. Obviously, I think it's hard for those of us who don't actually build rosters and manage rosters to appreciate 
the importance of that kind of flexibility. And increasingly, we're hearing it talked about in some other sports. You know, the NFL is restricted to 53 players. And if you can get a guy who can play a few different positions, then maybe you can carry an extra quarterback, that kind of thing. And it can really pay off for a team. Michael, we need to hop at the end of the show here, but we really appreciate your stepping away and taking some time with us. We love your work and, and wish you the best with it. All right. Thanks. That was Michael Bauman. Michael's a writer at The Ringer. You can follow him on Twitter, for example, his handle at MJ underscore Bauman. Bauman's B-A-U-M-A-N-N. This has been two hours of sports analytics here on Wharton Money While We do it every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10. We'll be back next week. Thank you. Big thank you for Daniel Bruno and on the sound engineer board and Matt Dots holding down the producer chair for only the second time. New producer. It's kind of exciting. Adi Weiner, my guest, my host in the first hour. We'll all be back to do it again between now and then. Enjoy your sports.